to episode 22 of the Camerosity Podcast, the number one podcast in the Northeastern Territory of the Democratic People's Republic of Eklund. I am your host, Mike Ekman, and with me tonight from Yellow Springs, Ohio, is president of the Americana Folk Music Festival Fan Club, Mr. Paul Reibold. I am shocked to learn that photography isn't your only hobby. No, I also hang out with banjo players, which really is a bad thing, but you know, it's, it's my life. From Gainesville, Florida, John Cougar Mellencamp's personal landscaper, Mr. Anthony Rue. Is it true that Jack and Diane is about you? Yes. No, Little Pink Houses is about me. You live in a pink house? Little Pink Houses. That one's that one's about me. Finally, it's Theo. I didn't have time to come up with something witty to say about Theo. So how's it going, Theo? It's going very well. Very excited to be here. We have a very special episode for you tonight. If you can believe it, we've recorded 21 episodes of this show and have managed to not dedicate anything to Leica. Well, that streak ends tonight, where we are proud to welcome, from Chicago, Illinois, an owner of Tamarkin Camera, Dan Tamarkin. Hey, it's my pleasure. Episode 21, does this mean that we're all, that we're, we're of drinking age? Absolutely. This is 22. Oh, this is 22. Yeah. We've already done that big party, and now, now we're done. Right, exactly. All right. Yeah, exactly. this is the hangover. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we have some people in the waiting room, uh, some returning guests, and at least one new face uh, that I don't recognize. Welcoming back, we have John Gilchrist and Mark Faulkner. Hey, guys. Hey, hello. All right, we've let some people in in from the waiting room. Uh, looks like we have Nafis is back. Hey, Nafis, how you doing? Hey, Mike. Good. Can you hear me? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we can hear you. Okay, cool. Great. Thanks for coming back on the show. Yeah, no problem. I see Bob Rodoloni. Hey, Bob. How you doing? How's your basement coming? Uh, I got two walls up. So um, All right. I broke my foot three weeks ago on the first day of renovating my basement. So it's it's yep. healed enough to where I could wear a boot and do a little bit of framing. So at some point, the chaos that's behind me in an unfinished basement will look more like a, a presentable area. Because I know, Robert, you've been, you've been wanting to come over to see the collection. I know. And I fear you'll trip and fall and hurt yourself on something. So Yeah. As soon as it's done, let me know. we got to work it out. Uh, welcome to the show, Mark Peterson. Hey, Mark. Welcome back. Thanks. Andre Dominguez. How you doing, Andre? Doing well. Excited. This is the first time I've actually been able to catch the podcast. It was a busy day at work today, but clocked out a little early carved out some time for this awesome you're on the negative positives podcast so uh, it's always fun to have another podcaster to to share their insights yeah thank you all for for having me i'm reporting here from the little studio area of cinestill hq and uh really really looking forward to talking some like especially with today's guest mr tamarkin who has helped me on many many occasions <laughs> awesome. hey congratulations on the 400d uh, launch today mate thanks theo appreciate it man for the people that can't see the Zoom call, he's got a nice purple background behind him, which I assume is intentional. <laughs> oh, yeah. Purely, purely coincidental. Where Where are you at, Andre? Like, what what state? Or uh, located in Hollywood, California. Oh, okay, California. Cool. Well, anyway, so we have Dan Tamarkin at Tamarkin Cameras. Um, for, the, for the few people listening who don't know who Dan is, Dan's um, shop is in downtown Chicago. Uh, you took it over from your dad, Stan. Uh, let's see. In 1971, my father founded Tamarkin Camera in the house that I grew up in. And eventually it found its way to be a store and a store with multiple locations. And when my father retired in 2010, uh, he said, Hey, what are you doing these days? Um, how'd you like to run uh, Tamarkin camera? And of course I've been obsessed with cameras and in love with Leica the whole time. My personal background 
so I've been at the helm of Tamark and Camera since 2010 and moved it to Chicago from Connecticut in 2012. My personal background is I was trained as a writer and a theater technician. So I uh, worked in storefront theater here in Chicago for many years uh, and worked as a copywriter as well uh, in the healthcare industry and a few other industries. Um, and I realized that uh, it would be a lot more fun to sell cameras, <laughs> not to mention yeah, that, yeah, yeah, it's really a lot more fun. And so my father, my father retired in 2010 and he said, uh, I'm going to play golf. So you make sure the checks land on my desk every month and we'll be AK. So I moved everything to Chicago and we are in downtown Chicago. Although if you live in the city, you might take exception with that. We're in the river North gallery district, which is technically right outside the loop. Um, Anyway, we're in downtown Chicago. We buy and we sell and we trade new, used, and collectible Leica. Uh, we also, our sister company, Tamarkin Auctions, runs a rare camera auction house, which is the oldest of its kind, dating back to the grand old days of 1996. And, uh, and so now everything is here in Chicago. And uh, um, I'm a collector of cameras, also of guitars and artwork and all kinds of different things. I do whatever I can uh, in those realms, but mainly I'm buying and selling and trading Leica cameras. So Dan, you're in walking distance to both the Jazz Record Mart and Frontier Grill. Yes, absolutely. That's very important. <laughs> That's right. You got two <laughs> great locations, especially if you're wearing a camera, then there, there's plenty to, to shoot. There's plenty of, yeah, absolutely. I want, to enhance, I want to just add a little bit to what Dan said. Back in the days before the internet, you guys are all too young probably to remember that, but maybe John isn't. But uh, if you if you wanted to buy a used Leica before the internet, you got Shutterbug Magazine, and you could call Jim Keel in Topeka, Kansas, or you yep. could call Don Chatterton in Seattle, or you'd call Stan Tamarkin in Connecticut. And you knew they were going to have the, the best of the best used equipment that you could find. And you knew that you were gonna you were gonna be well taken care of, and and they would become your friends. I knew Stan a little bit, but Jim Keel and I were very good friends over the years. It just you know it was a, it was a different way of doing business back then. And your dad was one of the princes. I mean, he was just a great guy to work with. Thank you so much. That's a terrific compliment. And to be in the same company as Jim Keel and other people have mentioned Ken Hansen's name as well. Yep, Ken Hansen, uh, Gil Gittleman. And Gil Gittleman, yeah, all these these are names from these are names from my childhood. Not necessarily people I came a little later than a lot of these than a lot of these folks, but yeah, it's thank you. That's a tremendous compliment. Well, it was a different way of doing business back then. When Jim Keel, if if so you could call Jim Keel and he would answer his phone, he always answered the phone Jim Keel, which you know you knew immediately wasn't an answering machine. It was Jim. <laughs> yeah. So he, uh, if you wanted, if he had something you wanted, you'd, you'd give him, you'd say, oh, I, you know, that looks good. How do you want me to pay for it? And he says, I don't know, don't pay me now. I'm going to ship it to you. Let me, let you check it out make sure it's what you want. It's going to work. If it works, you send me a check. Send me a check. Yep. yep. We still do that today. That's, that's just a, that's a different way. To Jim Keel used to be the manager of Beaverdale Photo in Des Moines when I was going to school at Drake. So I knew Jim when he before he got into the Leicas by himself. He was actually still this store manager 
of a camera store, and it was, was called Beaverdale, which is a suburb of Des Moines. So I've known him for years. Is he is, is he gone now? Or? I think he is. I believe yeah. he is. He was a Leica rep also. Yes, he was a Leica rep. Uh, also. Many years. Yeah. Matter of fact, after he left the store, after he gave up the management of the store, he became a Leica rep. And then eventually I saw his ads in Shutterbug, so I called him up one day, and he remembered me because I was there when I was in college. Great guy. So your inventory, Dan, obviously people come to you for highly regarded collectible cameras. Uh, the expectation probably is that they're in excellent working shape. Do you have a repair technician that you you first service cameras before offering them for sale? Or how, how do you make sure that your cameras are in perfect working order? We, we do. That's, that's a really good question. And actually, you've touched on something that is probably the bane of my existence is getting cameras repaired. And so there are fewer, uh, just to address this right off the bat, it takes forever to get cameras repaired because there's very few people who do it reliably. Now, there's lots of people who do it and do it well. I, for myself and my, for, for my business, I've got to have people who do it reliably and do it consistently. And so that's a big puzzle. So certainly if any of your listeners are like a repair people, please let me know because I've got lots of cameras and lenses that need repair. Um, and so <laughs> the reason that I say that right at the outset is because yeah, everything that we offer at Tamark and camera has been, except for uh, there's a small collectibles corner. That's a little bit different, but most of the stuff that we offer has been all CLA'd, clean, lubricated, aligned, and is working and warrantied. We also at Tamark and Camera have a small selection of items that are, are, we call it the connoisseur's corner. And these are items that are probably gonna appear in our rare camera auction, but are just kind of in the bullpen, basically. And those are kind of are as is, because they're rare and they're, uh, like they say on Antiques Roadshow, yeah. don't touch the patina, you know? So like, it, for example, if you have a very, a very early Leica M3 or a very rare camera, there's lots of collectors that don't care if the shutter's sticky. They would just rather it never have been touched or, or, or opened at all. And so that is its own sales point just in and of itself. And so we do have some items like that, but typically our inventory at Tamark and Camera has all, is all working and warrantied which is why it ebbs and flows. Like right now, if you go on our website, we've got hardly any Leica lenses while well, we're waiting for all of our little elves to work their magic and <laughs> waiting for stuff to come back into inventory. So we constantly have stuff coming in and, and going out. So it's outsourced then? It, it, well, there's, it depends. Like there's certain, there's certain repairs that I'll do. There's certain repairs that we have people in-house do. So there's things like cleaning sensors, aligning range finders, um, uh adjusting lenses and it's certain lenses not all of them um it kind of depends on what it is like i can work on sumars and sumatars but these are vintage 50 millimeter lenses but the 50 collapsible sumacron is a nightmare to work on so like it kind of depends some of the stuff we do in house and then there's the rare cameras and the rare cameras and the auction side of things by and large, those cameras are not serviced and they're, it's as is, not in a caveat mTOR sense, but in a don't touch the patina, don't clean it, don't do anything, leave it the way it is. Because the collectors that want it working have people that will make it working for them. 
what they want by and large, this is not across the board, but by and large, they want something that's unadulterated and pure, even if this right. shutter's sticky. Now you had said patina, and this is a question I've often wondered about any camera, not just Leica, but this is a good time to ask. Some people love the look of patina. They love that kind of like brass look, especially the black enamel ones. And um, you were on the Classic Lenses podcast a year and a half ago or so, and I was listening to that episode recently. And you said something in that show that I wanted to expand on. You said there was a point in the past where people would see like a black paint camera that has like little bubbles or imperfections and nobody wanted them because they weren't pretty enough but then like we've gone full circle and now people want the cameras with the patina and the little bubbles like is that like something you see more today people will actually pay more for a well-worn camera or is that just like kind of a an urban legend well i think well first of all anytime anybody says they heard me say something i go oh lord what did i say <laughs> but um uh, I always say what's real, but I'm sometimes prone to hyperbole. It, when I started in the business and when I first started getting involved with, directly with Leica and collectible Leica was before I took over for my family company. But nonetheless, it, it, it was years ago, people didn't want cameras with bubbles and with any of that wear by and large, because it was, again, it was a certain type of impurity. And of course, who wouldn't want their collectible camera to be absolutely mint condition, showroom, beautiful, right off the line? Who wouldn't want that? There's a certain je ne sais quoi about a camera that has been really ridden hard and put up wet because you kind of know that it's been through the thing. So there's, there's two different kinds of collectors. So from a desirability standpoint, both are valid and there's collectors for both. But what you're saying, Mike, is true. When I started in the business, people wouldn't, except for the most sophisticated collectors who really knew what they were looking at, people wouldn't buy stuff that had bubbles on it. If it and now I'm not talking about patina. Like, sure, the cameras would get worn a little bit. But if it had those little bubbles, and the bubbles, as my best understanding, are basically oxidation between the brass and the lacquer, and it's just age. And so... It, it seemed to me to be kind of silly, this lack of desirability of bubbled enamel because that that's authentic. I mean, you can't rush that. You can't put the top plate in an oven or do some kind of chemical thing to it and make it appear old. It's just, sure, people would do that, I suppose, and forge cameras, but sooner or later, you're gonna run into somebody who knows what they're looking at and they're going to know that it's not real. Anytime you see an intentionally aged, like a, it's almost always a Soviet, you know, camera made to look like it, you know, or something. Right. Or it's something that somebody got in their hands and are like, Ooh, I'm going to, I'm going to pre patina relic it. Oh man. And I'm going to relic it. Yeah. Right. Well, the, the Lenny Kravitz model. I had a customer who wanted that Len wanted the kit but only wanted one of the lenses. And I said, well, forget about the kit. Just buy the camera and the lens. It's the same thing. He's like, yeah, but it's got that look. I was like, I'll take care of that for you. Yeah, so, a little, little sandpaper. Yeah, sure. You get that like 4,000. I have a piece right here, actually. You get that real fine. This is the good <laughs> stuff. It's like 3,000 grit, you know? So, but it's not something I would recommend, but... 
this fellow wanted a thing and I, yeah, we can do that. And I think it looks good. I thought it looked terrific. It was an abomination in my estimation because I would, I, I, for me, I would say, give me the thing. Let me, I'll bounce it around. I'll carry it every day. You'll get the patina it's going to get. And so for me, that I don't really, that doesn't, that doesn't hold a lot of uh, interest for me. For those who haven't seen it, there was a Lenny Kravitz edition. Was it an M6 or an M7? It was, it was one of the M cameras. Uh, Yeah, it was actually later than that. I think it was an M8. It, no, it's digital. It's two forty. It was a, a digital. It was an M two forty. Yeah, two forty six. And remember. it was nasty. I mean, it had it had been pre relicked at the factory before yeah. they shipped them, with yeah. a lot of brass and a lot of junk on it. And and uh, it was the Lenny Kravitz edition. They were they were really pretty awful to look at. I mean, it, it didn't look real. It didn't look like it had been used. It looked like it had been messed with. Yeah, it's amusing because one of the tropes that we've we've had on this show in the past has been that when you're looking to buy an older camera, let's say from the 50s or 60s, that you're almost always better off getting one that looks like it's been a hard user because those cameras tend to be working cameras. Or if you have the one that is you know, 50 years old and looks new in the box, uh, chances are it's going to be gummed up. And yep. Yep. that the, uh, the, the rougher the look, the better the shooter. I think that's exactly right. And in fact, had a fella in my uh, showroom today who had a beautiful first version Noctilux, not the 1.2, but the F1. It's a beautiful lens. Looked like it had been rolled down a hill. And it had, he had made some mods to it and this and that. And I, I looked at that lens. I was like, I bet that takes great pictures. <laughs> <laughs> now, no, none of my customers would touch it because... I mean, the thing looks like it got rolled down the stairs. Yeah, people who are new to collecting or shooting film cameras, uh, especially younger people, you know, they they have this belief that, oh, things were made back then to last forever. You know, I can buy a 70-year-old Leica and it's going to shoot great today. And while that's kind of true, the difference is is cameras were built to last, but they were also meant to be serviced too. You know, when you went to, when you bought a Leica M3 in the 50s, you, it was assumed you would bring it back to the shop every now and then to get it lubricated, cleaned and stuff like that. That was a normal part of owning a mechanical camera. And my theory is, is that when you get these well-worn cameras that not only proves that it was used, but more than likely that original owner serviced it multiple times. You know, now don't get me wrong, you know, it, it might have been 30 years since its last service, but at least it's been serviced a couple times over the years. Maybe that original lubricant has been removed and replaced with something slightly more modern, as opposed to those new old stock cameras that you get or, that are just completely seized up. That's exactly right. In my experience, that's that's exactly right. And it's not so pretty necessarily, those shoot, shooters cameras, but almost your description, Mike, is perfect. Um, Dan, apart from the fact that I'm a bit disappointed that when you picked up that sandpaper, you didn't actually pick up a Leica and start sanding it in front of us. <laughs> the the um the a question I have is, what about the other spectrum of um work that's been done on the Leicas, like the ones where they get re-enameled, black painted, or the Hello Kitty ones? I've seen an example of someone that's done it. What you know? What's your thoughts on those? More power to them. I mean, if you want to, if you want to pimp your ride, knock yourself out. I, you know, I had someone come into the shop uh, a few years ago and she had an M3 that was covered in pink 
alligator and she was like you probably think this is an abomination i was like no that is so cool the camera's name was marilyn and it had this pink vulcanite and it was just so her it was so perfect i mean oh i think it i think it's great i mean i i'm of i'm cut from two different cloths i'm a collector and so there's a part of me that goes oh lord what are you doing and there's another part of me that's like hey i like to take pictures too let's take it let's make the camera an extension of our mind and of our eye and let's make it what we want to carry and if that's an accessory and it's hot pink or polka dot i mean hot you know get out and take pictures i feel the same way i I think it's cool when people customize cameras i mean there there is obviously a point at which you've bastardized it where people will sometimes (laughs) give it like the fake steampunk look by just super gluing like a random gear you know that's dumb but but when people do these cool repaints you know so i think that's i i really like that i think it looks nice some cameras like the the kodak hawkeye brownies look awesome when they're painted like pastel colors um there's other ones too there's a guy in one of the Facebook groups that for some weird reason loves repainting Minolta SRTs and he does them in some of these really vibrant colors and I think they look really cool you know and a camera like an SRT or honest to god even an M3 there were a ton of them made and there's still a ton of them out there so if somebody wants to make a Hello Kitty M3 I think it's cool some people get really bent out of shape about that though in 1986 I went to the Leica school and I'd been shooting Leica for a long time before then, but I, I bought my first new camera. I bought an M6 and I got it at the school. And if you can see it here, I had oh, my name know. engraved on the back of it and Leica School Wetzlar 86. When it came into the shop, I opened the box and there was a, the, the, a couple of guys standing around who were Leica guys. And they picked it up and they looked at the back of it and they almost fainted that I had had the camera defaced by having my name engraved on it. And uh, the Leica school uh, on the bottom with a date. I said, why not? It's my camera. I'm not ever going to sell it. Right. That warms my heart because I have a similar goal. So I, I work at Cinestill for uh, some, some context outside of the negative positives context. Uh, and I've told myself that, you know, when I reach some significant career milestone that also, you know, brings with it a little bit more purchasing power. I want to pick up a, uh, an MA in Vetslar and have, you know, my name engraved on the, on the bottom plate to, to have a thing where it's like, I bought a brand new film camera in the 21st century from one of my favorite brands. I'm never going to sell this thing. I'm going to shoot it until I'm in the ground and I'm totally okay. Customizing it, defacing it, engraving it, whatever you know, your opinion is with regards to that kind of action, but it's my camera, damn it. Well, my future yeah. camera in this case, but I'm, right. I'm very pro engraving. Yeah. I think that's terrific, Andre. I think that's, it's awesome. Uh, and also, I mean, look, that turns it into a family heirloom. And that's exactly the kind of, you're going to give it to your kids, you give it to your nephew, you give it to your godson, goddaughter, whomever. It really turns it into a family heirloom. And I think I think having stories like Paul's about the uh, Leica School in Dutzlar and, 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 and the idea of buying that camera, it should be an exciting thing. It should be... I mean, as a camera salesman, I'm going to tell you, I hope it's more than once in a lifetime, but as a camera aficionado, I'll tell you, man, I, I look forward to that day for you. I think that's terrific. 
And when you get that camera, just like the day that Paul unwrapped his, it's one, it's so exciting and it should be, that's what it should be. I think that's what it should be all about. And I love, I mean, despite my unboxing videos and all of my cavalry around handler, handling the cameras, they are jewels and any of these things that we want uh, or that we we use, whether it's a watch, whether it's a camera, with a fountain pen, a car, whatever, guitar, whatever it is, the purchase of it and the getting of the thing, it should be all about you and yours. Yeah, Dan, uh, don't worry. It's not going to be a once in a lifetime type of thing. I'm going to buy a 3G from you in the not too distant future. And I would <laughs> like I would like you to the same way. So I've got my M2 here, the same way that I have a, a little, you know, message from the previous owner on my bottom plate. I would love for you to sign my bottom plate. I Well, I would be honored. I would be absolutely honored. It would be my pleasure. And in fact, it's funny you should say that, Andre, because I've been thinking about, you know, back in the day, the whoever serviced the camera, whoever sold the camera would put their moniker on the inside of the base plate. And I've seen a bunch of them and in fact, have a bunch in my collection. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that old store. And that old store like a yeah. I need to do that. So yeah. you've given me the kick and the seat of the pants that I needed. So yep. I'm doing, I'm doing it. I think this is probably going to be backwards here on the video. Yeah, but, no. Uh, no, it's my, my side. Anchorage, my, Alaska. Uh, 1958 uh, M2 Elcan was uh, owned by a Walt Disney Company cinematographer who got sick of making those kind of uh, not fantastic uh, animal related live action movies in the, in the <laughs> 80s for Disney and moved out from Hollywood to Anchorage, Alaska to start his own, uh, you know, production company making documentaries. And I just love the fact that he's got his address there and a little note that probably was from whoever serviced it saying there April 28th, 1980, uh, clean repair and like I, I'm never going to take this little sticker off. I'm, I'm usually not a Providence nut, but like, I just think this is so cool. That's very cool. That's awesome. Twice, two separate times I have come across cameras that were serviced by Chris Sherlock in New Zealand of Retina Rescue. And I've spoken to Chris before I interviewed him once for my site. And like, I, when I saw the cameras, I would shoot him an email with a picture of like, Hey, I got one of your cameras and he's like, Oh, I remember doing that one too. So yeah, I think, I think those stickers are so cool. I would never peel those off. Um, I love when old cameras would have like a used Kodak film, you know, 620 film, or like I have a Footlander that says Footlander film. And it's like, when was the last time they had their own film and provenance like that? That's, that's old. It's, I think that's super neat. One of my medalists has a series of stickers from Kodak and Rochester, from where the original owner had been sending it back to Rochester to be serviced. So it actually has the, the sticker from the Kodak lab or the, you know, the repair center in Rochester. And I like, I thought that was so cool. Yeah, I've, I've, got, I've got a Nicomat, which I bought from Texas, which has actually got the National Parks sticker uh, on the inside. And I would never remove that either because I know that camera was used in the National, you know, Trapsing, traipsing across the national parks of Texas, taking pictures and, and recording um, how the place was before, you know, we, we start modernizing different sections of it. So it's, it's, it's really cool to just know that where it's been, what it's taken, who owned it, who used it. And, and this thing's beat to hell. I mean, it's been, it's been really used. And I specifically picked that one over another one purely because of that provenance. Yeah, and if I can, if I can hijack the discussion for just a second, um, 
you know, there's the world of, of, of Leica collecting, which we've touched on a little bit about, you know, the people that are obsessive about uh, condition and, the, and the, the ultra rare cameras. But if you, were to, if you were to make suggestions for somebody who wanted to get into shooting for the first time, do you have a recommendation for like where to start either with, with uh, Barnack or uh, with one of the M series? What would you recommend for somebody that's not really looking for an investment, but just looking for an amazing shooting experience and wanted to find out, like, I guess maybe both. If you had a, a, a Barnack suggestion, uh, camera body lens combination that you think is great. Um, and then an M suggestion. Anthony, that's a great question. I think, um, I think on one hand, well, let me just say that people typically approach Leica from a couple of different sides. One is they want the best optics and no, you know, no judges. There's lots of great optics out there, but people looking at Leica, they're either thinking to themselves, I want the best optics in the best picture, or they're thinking to themselves by and large, thinking to themselves, gee, I really like the form factor. And that's where I want to approach the system from. For example, we have lots of customers who have, oh, they really want a digital or a film M and they put some other manufacturer's lens on it because Leica lenses can be cost prohibitive as if the bodies can't. On the other end of it, there's lots of people that use Leica lenses because they know that, that they're terrific and they put them on a Sony or they put them on some other camera body. So I think that depending on how you're approaching the brand can make a difference. My advice would be no matter how you're approaching the brand, get the camera, first of all, that fit camera and lens, first of all, that fit your budget, but also that you gel with in as soon as you, as, I'm, as soon as you hold it, I'm telling you, it happens. It doesn't happen all the time, but when it happens, you know, I think from a, from a, cost perspective the best thing that you can that one can get anyone can get would be a Leica 3f or a, or it well if it's working then it almost doesn't matter what the model is but i would go for a Leica 3f either black dial or red dial i don't think it matters all that much and a 50 millimeter f2 lens or a 50 millimeter f 3.5 lens um the rangefinder way of shooting is such a peculiar and particular thing that I think the the approach of the camera and wanting that form factor is and should be probably the biggest driver, especially today, because so many lens manufacturers are making terrific lenses and they're not thousands and thousands of dollars. And the fact of the matter is, in my estimation, that you can make terrific photographs with a hot pink Hello Kitty Holga if you know the light and you carry it with you and you really want to make pictures you're going to get terrific pictures and then somebody hands you a Leica and you're like oh yeah what does it matter I'm still taking pictures and and so I think that there's a certain uh, there's something about the Leica M and or the the Leica rangefinder system for M cameras I think that it, assuming that you're using a 50 millimeter lens, you can't go wrong with any of the models. It's a question of whether or not you want more and other lenses and whether or not your Leica camera has the frame lines to support it. For M cameras, for screw mount cameras, there's all kinds of viewfinders and all kinds of stuff that you can get to for other lenses. I think a Leica 3F with a 50 Summicron or a 50 Elmar, which is a F3.5 lens would be perfect. 
and on the M level, the M cameras are selling for obscene prices. And, and so I would get something that's battle scarred and inexpensive because of its cosmetic condition and an M2 or an M3 with a 50 millimeter lens and, and a fistful of film. Or start two or a three and then add a, a maybe a Voigtlander lens or a, a seven artisan or something until you absolutely can, i mean build it build it as a system absolutely so these models you've been you've been mentioning you have them in stock now we typically we have these models in stock yeah i mean things ebb and they ebb and they flow um because we have everything cleaned and lubricated and aligned and all that it do, almost doesn't matter if you want something that's earlier so the like a 3f camera was made in the 1950s uh, the Leica M3 was also made in the 1950s, and then they went, you know, they, they're successive models. These cameras were built to last. They were built, they're all metal. Um, it, they're marvel of engineering. We've come across cameras that were made in the 1950s that don't need any service at all. Um, and so the fact that these have been serviced and are ready to go is even more of a reason to use, to use one of them. But again, the rangefinder shooting is a very peculiar thing in that the screw mount or barnack Leica cameras typically have smaller viewfinders and the viewfinder and rangefinder will be next to one another and maybe not coupled and those cameras it's a little more it's a more of a squinty and fidgety bit of business but for 500 bucks off you go with a, a Leica system with a camera and a lens it typically to get really nice stuff, you could spend closer to a thousand, but 500 bucks gets you up and running. Yeah, I got, I got very lucky in that uh, uh, two years ago, somebody on a local Facebook group uh, had posted that they had a camera and they, uh, they had not bothered to take the meter off the top of an M3 and they just posted the, 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 the it was like a Wetzler M4 meter. And I look at it and the, the, the way this is a, this is a, an M3 kit and uh, with some guy in a very rural part of North Florida and I race, I get my car and I race over there and it's in a trailer. And I thought, Oh, I'm going to get, this is like, this is like a Craigslist, like horror movie. I'm just going to get rolled. Uh, and I, and I show up and, and, and nobody answers the door. And finally they, they let me in I go inside. He pulls out this leather bag and it was the original leather bag that this camera had been purchased from in Munich. It had the bill of sale in it. And it was a, a, a late double stroke M3 with the uh, Sumerit and an Elmar and a Hectar. He was just asking very little cash for it. And it had the, the meter on top and it had a number of accessories. And uh, he's like, do you bring the money? I was like, yeah, I brought the money because let's see it. And he had me put it out in front of him like a, like a drug deal where it was like stacks of $10 bills across the table. And then he looks at me, he looks at the money, looks at the camera and he goes, you like it? Like, yeah, I like this a lot. He goes, you best be going now. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh. So wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. He sold it as a meter, but the camera was attached to it still? Yes, yes, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I would believe that is I don't know much about cameras. You know, you always see on eBay and you, they do. But I guess in that case, that was true. Yeah, he really didn't have any idea what he had. And uh, I spent more getting it CLA'd with Don than I paid for it. Uh, for, anyone, for anyone that's not a regular listener, we're going to have to have a show where just Anthony talks about his purchases <laughs> because he has the most colorful way he of does. purchasing cameras. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm blessed to have this camera because it literally looks like it just, you know, other than a tiny chip off the Vulcanite uh, on the very bottom corner by the latch, 
uh, it looks like it came out of the showroom last week and after Don worked on it, it's like, it's just, it's, it's butter, you know, and wow. everybody, everybody harshes on the Sumerit. I'd love that lens. You know, people, people harsh on the, the Hector and the Elmar, the, the 90 and the 135, you know, that 135, it may be a $65 lens. It's a lot of fun to shoot with. We were, I was a dealer for 30 some years and uh, I went, I changed jobs and I went to work for another store and the store I later wound up buying the store, but we were, we were friends with the owner. And uh, one year I, and he had some Leicas in his collection. And one year I came home from work on my birthday and I have a wall unit that has cameras in it on display. And it's, it's just nice. And I walked in the door and in the wall unit was this camera, which is an M42 gold-plated Barnack edition and the R3, both with Sumaluxes on it. These cameras were made in 1979. They've never had a roll of film in them, but I was shot with the lenses. I shoot with the lenses on other cameras. But anyway, what happened was my, my partner came into the house while I was at work and put those two cameras in my wall unit and gave them to me for my birthday. Awesome. That's a fabulous gift. And I've had them now for 30, 25, almost 30 years, and they're not for sale. I mean, they're just, there's something that, uh, that I'll keep. I really have no desire to use them. The, the, the bodies are a little too gaudy. They're gold-plated, and uh, they're ostrich or some kind of endangered species on the covering. But the lenses are Sumalux lenses, and they're excellent. I've used them on different uh, Leica cameras, and they're perfect. That's terrific. Yeah, I can imagine the gold plating would attract a bit of attention in some, well, it's, it's, some yeah. locations. <laughs> Yeah, it's one of those things that I, you know, I would never buy him. I would never buy him. He, he bought them because he thought they were cool. He bought, actually bought two sets of them. And uh, he sold one to a, another dealer in Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, he kept one. And then he, he didn't, he, when a sort of a signing bonus for me to come to work for him, he uh, decided he would give them to me. Wow, that's terrific. It's the brother and sister set. Yeah. They were, I think those were the, it was some centennial, like, or a yeah, hundred yeah, years yeah. of, there was some thing that they did. They're, they're always making special editions. God bless them. Yeah, it was the 100th year of Barnett's birth, 1879. Oh, right. 1979. Right. And uh, they made uh, 635 of them total. Of and the they, would, they would put special numbers on the back of the camera, right. and, it would, and the numbers would be like L100 and, and then E and then I and then C and then A. In a vain hope that a, a collector would buy the entire set, buy five right. different cameras just to say, be able to spell Leica. Right. Nikon never got sucked into that, did they? No, never did. Never made it. The only thing special they ever made was the millennial cameras, the SP and the S3 they reissued. And they weren't marked at all. They never marked them at all. There's a lot of marked Nikon cameras out there, but they're done by owners, companies, you know, institutions and whatever, but nothing that was ever done by Nikon themselves. The, the dog camera is not an official Nikon release. The dog camera, well, sort of, I guess. <laughs> well, Leica, went, all the special editions, Leica had a lot of different. Oh, ones. yeah, yeah. Especially, they came out mostly after the M6. Uh, there were anniversary editions on the M5 and the uh, and the SL2, but and the CL, there were anniversary cameras, but they came out with the camera of the month, basically after they came out with the M6. Uh, did you do you see many of those, Dan? We do. Um, most of the most of those late, um, especially M6 TTL special editions, were made in conjunction or 
at the prompting of the Leica Historical Society of America. Right. And so a lot of those are black painted cameras and we see a, we see a lot of those. Well, I, I, I bought a lot of the Millennium cameras in, in the year 2000, they came out with a, a Millennium version, which was a, a black paint M6. Oh yeah. And they made only 2000 of them. They were mm -hmm. absolutely beautiful. Cameras. Yeah, they are beautiful. They're very desirable these days. So they, I think that it was probably in the mid, earlier mid eighties that Leica realized that people were avidly beginning to collect. I think it wasn't until the sixties, mid sixties, that societies, you know, the Leica society and, and, and these other places were formed. I think that they probably got wind of that and started to make a lot of these, a lot of these uh, special edition cameras and they're beautiful. I mean, they're, you know, they're, they run the gamut from, you know, alligator skin, this and that and black paint and gold. And, you know, there's all kinds of different stuff, but it was, it was mainly in the, in the eighties and uh, early nineties, they made a lot of that stuff. Tons. What I think is interesting and, and part of the whole mystique of Leica on the brand is that the company always seemed to be aware of what people wanted. You know, they, Oscar Barnack made the first, like, uh, the story goes, he was actually working on a cinema camera and he needed a way to test single pieces of film. Because when you have a, a cinema camera, it has to roll up and reach the correct speed. You know, back then things were wind up and he'd blow through a stretch of film just to see if his timings were right. So he created the first prototype in, I think, 1913 to just expose a single frame of film. And since he wanted a, a larger frame to be able to look at it back in that day, cinema film was what we call half frame today. So Leica, the first Leica exposed the normal 24 by 36 millimeter frame, but that back then that was considered double size, whereas now it's full frame. But anyway, so, you know, they started releasing the original Leica, the Leica Model A, or, you know, the, the first one, it, it had a fixed lens, no range finder. Uh, it, it's distinct as it has that little hockey stick shaped infinity stop on it. I got to shoot one of those. Okay, so people want range finders. All right, so they made the Leica 2. Uh, they started adding range finders. Eventually, they added the, um, the uh, screw mount. Uh, Dan, I'm sure you know, uh, experienced collectors know, but they actually did make a Leica with a leaf shutter once. Um, it was the Leica B. And the story goes with that is that back then, for people who were into flash, the flash sync speed on focal plane shutters was incredibly slow. Like something like 1 20th of a second or something like that. So if you wanted a Leica, but you wanted a faster flash sync speed, you had to have a leaf shutter. So they made a Leica with a leaf shutter and that continued. And, and I love how uh, you could at, at various points in, in the, your camera's history, if something new came out, you could often send your camera back to the factory and they would upgrade it for you. So you could have a non-range finder model that had a range finder added later. And, you know, to some people that's not original, but if it's done by the factory with real factory parts, then in some ways you still do have an original camera. And I, I've sensed that throughout their whole history. Leica always tried to, they were lights back then. Um, they were always trying to give people what they want. And like you said, in the eighties, maybe seventies, when the era of the collector first came out, they said, all right, people want to collect. We're going to make some collector's editions, but they never stopped making quality products. And, and I feel like that's sort of 
added to the whole mystique that, you know, they were always listening. There's always something cool, something different. Whereas, you know, some of the other companies maybe didn't do that quite so much, but um, circling around to that, you know, we talk about how some people really, 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 really love Leica almost to a fault, right? So do you see that a lot, like in your store, like these really diehard fans come in and, and they won't even consider anything else. Like, is, is that like a, a common type of customer you deal with? Oh yes. One of these, one of these days I, I want to write a book. That's a taxonomy of, of Leica nuts. <laughs> uh, you know, cause you got, you got the light, you got the Leica nut. Who's got the Leica bag, the Leica lapel pen. They got, maybe they got a, like a watch, they got a, like a pan, they got all the different stuff. And then you got the, you got the cat that has their Leica camera with their 50 Sumacron wrapped in a towel in their backpack. And, or, I mean, there's all kinds, you know, it, it, you get, you get, you get it all, but you touch on something that's a very, very interesting facet of Leica because they made a lot of revisions, not only model to model, but you could buy, like you say, Mike, a, a Leica a One Model A. And when they put a rangefinder on the camera in about 1930, you could have your Model A updated to the latest standard. Now, they didn't do it for free, but they would do it. And so you could find a lot of these conversion cameras. Um, you can even find real oddball cameras, like the, the Model B, what you mentioned is this camera with the rangefinder camera with the compor lens on it they made two of them a rim set and a dial set compor camera and the shutter was not in the camera body but it was in the lens right compor shutter well i found one of these cameras seen a couple of them actually and it's a compor body which has no shutter with a regular interchangeable lens like okay wow that's different. how you're gonna take a picture here <laughs> there's all kinds of different stuff floating around out there. Now, this example were two things, two, two great tastes that don't go great together. I don't know who did this, but you can find all kinds of bizarre um, uh, conversion cameras. It was very common. When they did convert them, they kept the serial number from the original camera. So you'd get a camera that was a Leica 2 that had been converted to a 2C or something like that. And it would have a serial number that didn't really match to what you what you got that's right that's how we can tell that's how we know you can tell how you can tell it's been changed it's been that's changed. how you yeah that's how you can tell it's a conversion camera and they made i mean they made lots of, they'll still do it to this day but they made lots of uh lots of conversions like that and the and it's a very good question oh m2 50 elmar i see it there we're we're we're, we're on it we're on zoom so like i can see you pick up the andre picks up a camera i'm like Ooh, yeah, don't M2. get distracted <laughs> i know I'm, i am the most distractible person ever um so but mike you touch on something that's that's a very peculiar thing and i don't know that it's specific to Leica necessarily but Leica is well known for it where Back in the day, nobody said, oh, you better not put that part on that camera because one day some collector is going to say that part doesn't belong on a camera. And the fact of the matter was, at, is still to this day, that at the um, uh, factory at Leica, the job is to make the camera, get it out the door and sell it to the end user. And so in the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and so on, up until about the 70s, uh, where, where 
Paul has his edition from, they, nobody was thinking about, ooh, it's all gotta be correct. Otherwise, no collector's ever gonna want it. They were building cameras. They made a camera. One guy said to another guy, say, hey, John, do you have a part for this camera? I need a rewind knob. Do you have one there on your, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's another one. And so nobody was thinking about that kind of thing. And so as we look back at some of these Leica cameras that have either been converted or have been somehow modded, some of these cameras we know were done at the factory. And how is that any less of a Leica than something that was born what it originally is today? And if you look at some of the premier auction houses and you look at some of the finest museum, quote unquote, museum quality collectibles that are out there, what by and large you find are cameras that are, are completely original, have never been changed, and there's nothing different about them from the way they rolled off the production line other than maybe a little patina that is the collector's holy grail let's open up and let's get some questions for dan some of our uh, our guests uh, i assume you are, are curious or just want to hear the the raw unedited version of the podcast with the video <laughs> on yeah i got a question here so i have a, a 3f with a 50 sumatar ah yes um, this is my one and only Leica. Uh, so when you were speaking about uh, getting your first Leica, that was kind of <laughs> exactly, it's got uh, some nice scratching on the uh, brand. Uh, yep. From some reason, I'm not sure what defacing purpose was, but uh, the story the, the owner told me when I bought it at the state sale was that when they left the country, they, they didn't want him to take it. They thought he was going to take it to sell it for money. And so he defaced it in order to leave the country with it. <laughs> um, but my question is, um, I have, uh, I've shot it five, six rolls through it. And I'm just curious, I don't know if it's a problem that's standard or typical, but it shoots through the sprockets. Is it something along, I don't know if you've seen this or heard this problem, but uh, it shoots through the sprockets. So I'm not sure if the take-up spool is wrong or if there's something. Do you I'm mean... Do you mean, Mark, that, well, first of all, Mark, congratulations. That's awesome. And I love, like Andre's story earlier about the cameras. I love hearing stories about the cameras. I think it's, it, that is one of the most precious things about them. And a lot of people did post-war want to remove Germany or remove, remove Leica. So that's not, an un, that's not an uncommon thing. And it fits really well with the story. Here's my question for you. Do you mean that the image is appearing over the sprockets? On one side. On one side. Right. It's on the top side. Correct. Chances are you're loading the camera properly, but the film isn't going all the way up into the body. And so it's not tracking exactly correctly along the film gate and along the pressure plate. That's the only reason I could think of that there would be, the image would appear over the sprockets. Yeah. Okay. I can imagine there's also, it's possible that there's some masking from the interior of the camera that is not present anymore, but that typically manifests as blur blurriness or light leak. So next time you go to load the camera, uh, when you, when you go to load it, make sure that the, I know it's so difficult with these, with these, um, Barnack and screw mount like is because they don't have a back door on the camera. So you can't, load the film and look at how it's resting on the sprockets. Um, but just make sure that just with both thumbs, when you load 
the spool and the the take up spool and the canister that they're both seated kind of like in an, to an equal depth inside the body run that roll let me know if if it if it does it again um that's the only thing that i can think of off the bat that would do that i can think of one and, and maybe i'm off on this but this is something that i experienced with my my canon uh 4sb and that's that uh, apparently people had had trouble loading it before and they had been chipping the edges of the film next to like the sprockets when they were loading it. Oh. And it had a collection of little film chips that yeah, were chips. wedged in at the top of the, uh, of the camera, um, that were keeping it from seating properly. And I turned around and just gave it a little squirt with some canned air and it looked like confetti coming out. And, <laughs> and yeah. then I didn't have a problem loading it again. And I it got rid of my sprocket issue. So two things. That's very true. Uh, a dirty camera, a bunch of gunk in there, not getting that film. I've even seen where you can clearly tell that one, it, it's almost like cockeyed a little bit. I've actually seen that. But yeah. what a lot of people don't realize is, so this is going to be hard. We'll have a picture of it on the final copy. But I have here just a regular Kodak gold 3500 cassette. I don't have a lights one, but I have a Nikon, a Nikon reloadable cassette. So, okay, well, but if, if you put them side by side, the, the metal ones are taller. So the cassettes we have today are not the same depth as the ones they used back then. And a lot of times I had an old Contax that did the same thing. Uh, a Zeiss 10X did the same thing. Some of the Japanese rangefinders do the same thing too. And the image just gets shifted ever so slightly because the, when you stick the cassette in it's not the same dimensions as the old metal reloadable cassettes are so like if i don't know if you have any there dan any leica reloadable cassettes in your let drawers? me see i think i do this is brilliant mike you're exactly right um so fine now this is a nikon one but it should be identical in dimensions to a leica one or yeah, a contact no, no, one no, that no you're right about that there's about it's hard to see on the camera but there's about i'd say about a two millimeter difference. The the ones we use today are shorter. So when you shove them up in there, they're going too far. They don't see. They're good. They go too far. They don't see exactly right. That's brilliant. I would never have thought about that. Could you do like a spacer? I think that that lines up with my story as well because I I, I load it and I turned it to T and I opened it up and it was aligned and then I actually used a yeah. dummy roll and, and went across and it when I turned it it misstarted the misalignment through rest of the frames. Try, see if you, I know they are expensive, but see if, if you have an opportunity to buy one of the old metal reload. These are the kind with the little key that when you twist the key on the bottom of the camera, it opens and closes the cassette. If you can try loading your camera with one of these and see if that resolves your issue. But you have to be careful, Mike, you have to be careful because that's called a, a Filca, F-I-L-C-A is the code. And it's different from the XMU, which is made for the M cameras. The Felcas are made for Felcas are made for Mark's camera. So if you can find a Felca, that would work on your camera, but not not an XMU. You don't want one of those. I can tell you that it's ninety nine percent certain it's going to be taller than uh, a modern day cassette. Mike, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. I, I love it. Mark, if you want, I think I have, I think I might have one of those Nikon cassettes. Mark, drop me a line and I'll send one to you. And okay. if you're brave enough to try it out, yes. I'll just, I'll just send it to you. Let me know what happens. Okay. If you don't have one, Dan, I know I've got some. Okay. All right. Right on. 
And I think you can also use like a rusher, a, a rubber grommet to help that, sort yeah. of space it so that it will move up there. Good idea. Is this where Paul hijacks the show to talk about obscure like a product code names? Ooh, that's my favorite topic. What's your favorite? What's your favorite code, Dan? Ooh, John, holy smokes. Wait a minute. I'm sorry, Paul. John just John is flashing on the screen a very rare viewfinder called a white Sioux. Yep. Uh, you let me know if that needs a loving home. I could use one in my collection. Um, uh, it, it probably does. You we're gonna we'll we'll talk. That's <laughs> yeah, that that's a prize. It's actually kind of almost a funny story. So I work for a camera store in South Bend. So I'm not that far from you. Yeah. And uh, this was, we bought a box of stuff from somebody because we buy used stuff all the time. And I don't remember who it was or what, but later we're going through the box and down in the bottom corner of the box is this. That makes my heart go pitter patter. That's oh, yeah. one of the most beautiful things I've heard in a long time. <laughs> That's a prize. And it, that you found it like that, that yeah. it gives me, restores my hope in humanity and faith in humanity. It's uh, original black enamel. I've seen yeah. them as, as chrome, but this is, I haven't found references to them in black. They made them in black and in chrome. Yeah. They, yeah. They For were, people like me that don't quite, I mean, I, I can see what, what it is, but what, what makes that so special? Is it just rare? It's rare. It's a tiny little item that many people lost and got smashed underfoot or it's just rare it's just hard to find it's got a little bit of a dent in the top you know it's just, it's, it's really just a viewfinder it's not yeah it We're just slides like into the go, shoe we go bonkers for stuff like that what camera would that been made for that would be made for the leica one model uh-oh what would that be made for it's an early it really one any, any of the, the first three any of the first three it could potentially be used on, but really it was made for the like a single shot, which was the, which was the, uh, uh, a single shot camera is basically like a, you would put your like a lens on this metal housing, the viewfinder in the top of it. And you had a little, um, uh, cable release and it was for a single slide of film. Uh, but now that's like, that's stumped the chump. You've stumped the chump. I don't, I, I'm 99% sure that that's what that thing was made for was the single shot camera, but I would have to do some research. I just know like, I, like I'm a, like a bloodhound. I know that it's rare and valuable. That's the part that I know without consulting any book. Well, that's, that's not even the good thing that I have to share. Oh, this is so be good. So I have this nifty case. Oh yeah. The half moon case for the dual range. And yeah. The, yeah. And it's got hollow. Yeah. yeah. This, this is a, uh, this is a Sumalux 35 millimeter 1.4 with John the hood showing... and the, with the hood and the goggles Holy and shit. it's got the steel. Ooh, yes. Nose. Yeah. That's a rare and desirable kit. John is showing, uh, the first version of the 35 Sumalux lens that was made to fit on the Leica M3 camera. So it has these kind of goggle attachments that uh, yeah, what people call them, goggle attachments with the Olux hood and the, the steel rim Sumalux. It's a very rare and desirable lens. It's like, it's really like, cool. uh, it's like uh, unused. That's pretty. Oh. This is another, we didn't know what it was when we got it. We bought a kit from a gentleman who was going into a nursing home and uh, we bought a, a, a variety of stuff from him and worked out a price that he was happy with. And it wasn't until later that we were uh, researching stuff that it's like, 
Oh, this is not what we thought it was. Yeah, that's a prize. That's a terrific, terrific find. So yeah, that's super cool. So I can't the, get the hood back on. Oh, that thing, it, it actually came with an instruction card on how to put that lens shade on. It's It goes on in a very strange way where it doesn't really turn. It makes about a, an eighth of a turn on the lens. Okay. It's a very oh, strange yep, I see it now. situation. I see the grooves. Yeah, that's a really cool little kit. I mean, I think that any anytime we find these, you know, the can the the camera and its case and the lens that it came with or any of this stuff that's all kind of together, even if it's not originally what would originally have been delivered together, but a nice neat little set like that, the camera, it's the the lens the case, the shade, and everything fits in this kind of like uh, clamshell half moon case with a leather yeah. strap. It's really a terrific little set. Even the leather on the strap, I mean, these things are notorious for being, you know, old and dried out. This to yeah. me looks like, boy, I'd carry this with this leather. That's beautiful. It's beautiful. On the complete opposite end of the spectrum of rarity, but touching on kind of visual aids and then connecting back to Dan's previous recommendation of the 3F as a great uh, beginner camera for the Leica enthusiast, the uh, SBOOI, you know, 50 millimeter external viewfinder, I think is one of the best investments in just all of Leicadom because those viewfinders are quite squinty. And if you're like many of us here on the call who are uh, bespectacled, it can be quite <laughs> difficult to you know jam your eye up in there without scratching things up or being able to kind of see into the corners and what's cool about those external finders obviously you can throw them on any camera um or like a canon <laughs> exactly but it's yeah. also a uh one-to-one -one magnification which allows you to you know i mean with a with a barnack like a, you're already having to move your eye from the viewfinder window to the rangefinder window so it's not that far of a distance to go from the rangefinder window up to you know the the cold shoe you know accessory shoe to look through the viewfinder but because it's one to one even if you have uh glasses there's also you know the actual uh eye point is such that your eye can be pretty far away from it and you can still see into the corners and you can have both yeah. eyes open to give you a little bit more peripheral vision. I mean, one of the many reasons why people love rangefinders in general, but like as especially, is that ability to kind of see outside of the frame lines. And with those uh, 50 millimeter or five centimeter external viewfinders, uh, it, it can completely transform the experience with a, a Barnack Leica from something kind of frustrating and fiddly to mm. something really, really enjoyable. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. I use my lights five centimeter viewfinder on everything. I've, I have the same mounted to a Canon right now. Absolutely. My vision is garbage. So being able to see the whole frame through that is, is amazing. So yeah, I 100% agree. That's an awesome recommendation. Real quick, though, I want to circle back just before I forget, but I, I did take the, the Nikon cassette. I stuck it in my M3. I don't actually have a screw mount like it here, but I took a Leotax um, and put it in there. I was able to close the plate. So the, the right Nikon on. cassette, if you can't get an actual lights one, will work fine in your in your 3F. Um, since um, since uh, Mike's picking picking up um, different cameras there, there's there were over history through I should say through the course of history, there's been a lot of Leica copies 
you know, ranging from the dodgily made ones in, in various countries through to really nice ones made in, you know, in Japan and Germany itself. Do, do you actually sell those in your store as well, Dan? Or, you know, if you were going to pick the best cop, like a copy, what would your personal view be? Uh, I, would, I would say the Canon cameras are terrific. Um, we, we sell them from time to time. Mainly, they, it has more to do with rarity than actual users. It's not something that we typically have on our shelf for people that are actually shooting. It would be a rarity. Um, I can just tell you that the Canon cameras, and I, geez, I hate to say this because I love Leica, but I got to tell you that almost all of the Canon cameras that I've come across, the shutters are working, rangefinders are nice and bright. They're ready to roll. I don't know enough about the interior of a camera to tell you exactly why that is. Um, but I think uh, for Leica copies in the M39, um, Leica thread mount, Leica screw mount variety, I would go for a Canon every single time. With the exception, perhaps, of the more modern Bessa cameras. Those are a lot of fun and they work great. That's quite interesting. So. But you only sell them from a rarity point of view, obviously, because you're you're a Leica specialist. That's um, that's a high recommendation with the, for the Canons in that case. I think the Canon cameras are terrific, and you know, it also it comes back to what you know, using whatever whatever it is that you have and that you're gelling with, and that you that you really enjoy, and that you get good photos out. It's the best thing ever. Um, I I haven't seen enough Leica copies. Well, I'll tell you that there was a. I don't know who made this camera. There was a, it was like, there's a Konica rangefinder camera. There's a couple of vintage cameras that I've seen that are M39 um, that look like pretty solid cameras to me, but they're rare. You know, it's just not something that I come across very often. Zorky and Fed are the ones that I see most often. And they're terrific to look at. They're beautiful cameras. You can, you know, maybe they're working and you can shoot a roll, but you can also pound some nails with them too. Um, they're pretty useful around the house. <laughs> they don't quite have the smoothness when you try and wind no. the film on though. <laughs> I'm going to catch flack for that. I know I will. But. You know, it's, I think it's valid. And, and I've said this a bazillion times that, you know, when you taking away condition, right? Because I don't care what camera you have, whether it's a mint, m3 or an abused m3 if it's not in good working order then it's not fair to judge it you got to get them working and if you get a nicely working zorky or a fed it is not to the level of refinement of a like there's no doubt about that you look at the the engraving of the letters you know the exposure counter you can see rough edges you know like us have a very smooth curve around um you know where the like the step you know, the top plate goes down to low. It's very elegant. Whereas on the, the Russian cameras, you can usually see, you know, machining marks, you know, where somebody probably took a file to kind of get mm -hmm, it. Right. So from a distance on a shelf, they pretty, you know, they're going to fool most people, right? When you hold them, Leicas are more refined, hands down. No, no denying that. They're smoother. It's like comparing a Chevy to a Mercedes. Right. But that said, yeah. that Chevy and that Mercedes can get you to the grocery store the exact same amount of time. They can haul your kids to soccer practice. They both run on the same gasoline. That's and at the right. end of the day, if all you want to do is take a picture, get a good working, any of the copies are going to work. You know, for, right. for me, 
the appeal of like I'm holding an M3 and, and, and it feels like a jewel. I mean, they, they made quality stuff. Is it a requirement to take good pictures? Absolutely not. You know, but that's not why you buy it. You know, nobody buys a Rolex because they keep better time. I guess, you know, some people might say, right. that they do, but, but no, they know, don't, they keep terrible time. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you, bu you buy it because there's, there's history attached to it. They're built. Well, there's, there's just so many cool things about a lot of these old cameras. And, and I'll, I will defend a Soviet camera to anybody who just immediately dismisses them as garbage. It's like, well, you gotta be a little bit fair there too. But I also will acknowledge that when you, when you do put them side by side, there's no mistaking the likers are nicer. Yeah, and you, but and, and uh, uh, Mike, you raise a great point. I mean, the fact of the matter is, if the thing is working and it and you're making pictures with it, it's all it it doesn't it doesn't matter. And sure, it definitely it is. I think that you know Chevy to uh, Mercedes can be an, an apt analogy. Uh, but I'll tell you that if I wanted to take pictures and I didn't have a camera, I'll take anything. It doesn't, yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to be, I'm not snobbish about it. I, don't, I certainly don't want to appear that way. I, and so I was a little flippant when I was saying that they're very useful. I mean, assuming that they're working, it's a terrific camera. There's no reason why not. I've seen photographs come out of a, a, a Zorky or Fed 50 millimeter F3.5 and you put them next to a Leica 50 millimeter F3.5. I mean, especially if the, if the, if the image was, was, was made at say 3.5 or f4 or 5.6 how are you going to tell the difference i mean right and, you know the the right camera is the camera that you carry so i don't want to uh, i i don't want i don't want to talk talk down to any <laughs> to any camera i love them all another thing too is like let's say somebody comes in your store and they, they they just know vaguely about like uh you know they've heard about them they recognize the red dot they walk in your store and they're maybe they don't have a lot of money and they're probably immediately shocked at the price. Right. And they right. go, I don't know if this is for me to that person. I might say, check out a Canon, check out a NECA or a Leotex or a Zorky and see if you like it. Some people may just fundamentally not like rangefinders. There are SLR right. people who will not touch a rangefinder. John's raising his hand. Uh, some people can't for the screw mounts. They think the viewfinders are too small. Some people don't like coupled meters or uh, I'm sorry, coupled range finders versus uncoupled range finders. And these copies are excellent ways to get into it. And if you buy a Zorky and let's say you really get into it and maybe you're like, all right, I'm going to get, you know, I can get actually a lights, a like a lens and put it on there. And then maybe like that's sort of like the gateway drug into actually then stepping up towards spending the big bucks on on the on the more expensive camera so you know to anybody listening to the show who is interested in a leica but just can't afford it don't be embarrassed to try one of the copies because a lot of them are really really good in fact i'm of i, I don't own a leica screw mount simply because i just i'd rather take that money and get four cheaper cameras that i can play with than just have the one you know, and that that's just how I am. But, you know, not everybody's that way. But there's yeah. nothing wrong with the copies if that's in your budget. I love the copies. I have, I love Canon. I've got a, well, a dozen of them or so. But I finally got around to getting like a little 3A here. And I was kind of anti Leica for a while. I was like, what could possibly be better than these Canons? But then the first time shooting this thing, I fell in love with it. And, and, and then I picked up a, a, a Leica Flex SL, which I also love. It's got a beat up lens, but it takes really good photographs. 
And then Johnny Martyr shot my wedding with his M3 and I got to play around all that during the reception. And I was like, oh, great. Now I want to get one of these now. So I kind of get it from the other perspective where you start out on something else. And I found out that I really do like the feel and the build quality. It seems like the Leicas are particularly receptive to, be, to being used. Like they, they keep in great working order the more you use them, maybe more so than other brands. And I think it's another reason why when you find one that is well-loved, well-used, beat up, that it's actually probably going to be working because it's been used more often throughout its life than something that's been sitting on the shelf. And so it may not have had a, a CLA, but is still in fantastic working order. There is something about, I don't know if it's the bearings or the lube in the wind lever of the Leica Flex SLR. It is so smooth. You know, like the Topcon RE Super is really, really smooth too, usually. But I tell you, if, if you're a fan of tactile, you know, like orgasmic, like, oh, I like the way this feels, winding on the SL or the original Leica Flex is, is, is really, really nice. Yeah, there's, there's no, play, no play, no slop, nothing. And it just, again, it also feels like you could defend yourself with it if you needed to. Yeah. Um, but it just feels really nice in the hand. And, and I feel like I, if I'm going to go ahead and get a shot, I know that it's not going to jam up. It's not going to do something strange on me. Whereas even something else is quite reliable might do that. But I found this yeah. thing, depending, no matter what the temperature is, things like that, uh, it, it seems like they work, Leica's work in all, all uh, temperatures, except for like, you know, rain or something like that. Obviously you don't want to take it out in, but I've just been kind of a convert that, that I was kind of against them from the beginning when I first started collecting, you know, Argus and things like that. And now I'm like, Ooh, I would like to have an M3 at some point. Mark, now you got a guy. So now, now you got a guy. <laughs> I think, yeah. I mean, I, I think that there, there is something about that, uh, about the Leica that is absolutely fantastic. And they're, they're silky and they're, you know, there, there's just, there's something about it and it's not, they're not for everybody. And I, and I, you know, I I understand completely when people say, "Oh, Leicas are overpriced," or you can't uh, look. I've heard it all, and I and I think that that the right camera doesn't need to be anything other than what's right for you. Right. And for you know, and for some, I'll tell you that I I have I learned on a, a Pentax K one thousand. I had an Olympus OM one for years years and years and years and i loved it that's what i shot on that's what i knew um eventually i got a leica um i fell in love with it and actually the first leica that i got uh i bought from my dad and i got the fa family price which is nice but i couldn't afford a lens and so i had the camera it's actually sitting right here i actually i had the camera and and i would wind it and i would put film in it but i couldn't take any pictures i didn't have a lens and so I, I, despite my pedigree, was not born with a, but like a silver spoon in my mouth, and am a uh, fairly avid shooter. So I can appreciate that idea that not that it doesn't ha it doesn't have to be that thing. It doesn't have to be the Leica. It should be the camera that you want to carry. Absolutely. I, I'm glad you brought up the SLRs, though, Mark. We've spoken entirely about rangefinders so far, Dan. Like what? kind of recommendation would you have for someone who wants to get into Leica but maybe just doesn't like range finders would you go for the like flex the r series what what is like your frequent recommendation i think well these flex monstrosities count yeah they do right so well like andre is andre is pointing towards 
and pointing towards the, the VisoFlex system, which is a, a mirror housing that allows you to transform a Leica rangefinder into a Leica SLR. And it's a very bulky item, but they're very inexpensive. So you can transform your, your, your M camera into an SLR if you really want to. But uh, from the SL, Leica SLR standpoint, I would say the first rule of thumb is don't go near the R4. <laughs> And the reason, <laughs> I love them. The reason I say <laughs> that, and why? <laughs> the reason I say that is because the the R4, R4S, R4S Model P, they they make great door stops. Nobody's really working on. No one that I know that I uh, have found is working on these anymore. And they had electronic issues that if you can find a working R4 buy two of them because it's not going to be long before that second one is going to become very important to you. I think that the cameras that preceded the R4 and the cameras that superseded the R4 are worth getting. I think like Mark was pointing out the Leica Flex and the Leica Flex SL and SL2, those things, I mean, they're like, it's like a brick. I mean, that's a piece of steel. People still work on them, and they're e relatively easy to work on. And they have incredibly bright viewfinders. And they they're have very, very bright, bright viewfinders. Yes. That's right, Mike. And so I think that the later R cameras can be problematic, and I'm thinking R5 and R6 and R7, because they do have electronics and not everybody can service them. But the best of, the, of, of those cameras, I think, is the R6.2, which is basically the M6 of the SLRs, and it's a fully mechanical like a SLR and when the battery goes really you've only lost the meter. I would recommend either the first two models, the Leica Flex or Leica Flex SL, SL2 in working order, those cameras. And then I would look at R5, R6, R7. And I think that they're terrific values. And the lenses are awesome. The generation of lenses that Leica made between the 1960s and the 1980s were terrific. And there's the same thing for the M as it is for the R, the reflex system. And so if you have a, a 50 Summicron that was made in, you know, 1962 or 68 or whatever it was, when the Leica Flex came out, um, that lens is every bit as good as the 50 Summicron that was made for the M or screw mount camera at the same time. They're terrific lenses. I do hear that a lot of cinema people have been uh, buying up the R lenses and rehousing them for digital video, which they don't seem to, to, as far as I know, they don't seem to be doing that with the rangefinder lenses. No, because those rangefinder lenses, the diameter is too small to actually be workable on the video camera. So they need that larger right. mount. And those, I mean, yeah, if you can, if you can mod those out, I mean, the problem with Leica lenses, and this is true of M and R, and it's true of SL, it's true of all Leica lenses is that they have dust inside of them. And when you show a cine person, a film person, a lens that has dust inside of it, they lose their minds. And it just, it's not, it's a non-starter for them. And so I've found that like the lenses that need to go to Ducklos or, or wherever to get modded, they also really just need to get completely overhauled because the cinematic folks have much, much, much higher standards than the for better or for worse no judges they have much higher standards i think than than the film people and in fact i'll go so far as to say if you want to shine a light through a lens in my showroom you best bring your own flashlight because 
we don't typically do that because if the naked eye can't see it, how's the film going right. to see it? And if the yeah. naked eye can't see it, what do you really think about your sensor seeing it? If your eye can't see it, well, then what does it really matter? Um, and now there's varying degrees of cogent arguments around that. And I'm always open to all of them. I'm just giving you my impression. Um, it's very uncommon that it's, that it's necessary to shine a light through a lens. It would have to be something like the, the lens that John showed earlier, which is a very collectible lens that you wouldn't want to open unless you absolutely positively had to. It's the same way with bubbles and lenses. The, the Leica optical guys always referred to them as little elephants. Right, right, right. <laughs> the lens, they were as big as elephants. That's right. And they have zero effect on photography. All lenses had bubbles in them up until about 1945. Robert, you've, you've talked a lot about uh, Nippon Kugaku's ability to, to make glass without bubbles. They were they, they put a tremendous amount of effort into reducing that. Yeah, Nikon prided themselves in the fact that they were able to make bubbleless glass as early as 1947. And uh, they never really explained how they did it. It was a secret. It was a pretty big secret. But back in those days, even the Zeiss lenses had a lot of bubbles in them. And the Leica lenses had bubbles in them. Oh, yeah. But I have seen over the years, I've probably looked through a couple thousand rangefinder mount Nikkor lenses. And I can maybe remember eight or 10 that had bubbles, you know, and they're just, they just found a way to do it. And it probably had something to do with the steering method or whatever, but that was one of the things that they promoted themselves with that they had glass that had no bubbles in it. Because at the time, the people they were trying to compete with, which was the Germans did have bubbles. So it was a good selling point. They also had coating immediately after the war. All, all knickers are, are coated after the war. And that was, again, was ahead of what the, some of the Germans did. And again, they promoted that for that same reason. The Germans didn't have it. So if you see a lens with a bubble, you know, what Dan was talking about, shining a flashlight through, it's going to make it look way worse than it really is. You know, I, I've yeah. seen that on eBay where people are shining a, yeah, a light shine, through their yeah. lens. And I think that's actually doing them a disservice. They're probably going to sell for less. Because people are going to see that and get scared away. I've been I've been to many shows over the years, especially the Leica buyers and sellers. They're always doing that. They've always got their little light here. Oh. They're always looking through like this. I never did it. Never did it. I yeah, hold it up. If I can see either. fungus, it's going to be there, right? That's right. That's I don't right. get the light to see that. Those Nikon lenses, those Nikon lenses that were made for the Leica screw mount are, in, are very, very, very well made. Oh, yeah. Very well made. First of all, they were mounted like like you wouldn't believe. I mean, they're just tremendously mounted well. And they hold up because of that. Uh, the glass was good. The, most, of the, most of the formulas were not extravagant. They weren't extreme formulas. They were just well-tested formulas. You know, uh, Nikon uh, tended to use the Zeiss formulas more than they did the like and um, the sonars and things like that. But uh, what they did was they just took the current formulas and they improved them. I like how the 50 F2 screw mount lens uh, focuses closer than the rangefinder yeah. coupling allows. Yeah. So you can go down to one and a half feet. Well, then you can do that with the one four. There's also a version of the one fours that do that. The one fours also come with a close focusing mount. Yeah. You get to the normal three foot and all of a sudden you just keep pushing and it clicks and it goes into like down to a foot and a half or so. Yeah. But they made almost their entire series in screw mount all the way up to about, well, they discontinued the screw mounts in 1960 just after just before the rangefinders were totally discontinued they stopped making the screw mounts october 1960 they announced that they weren't going to make them anymore but up to then they made every lens except the stereo in screw mount 
we have two people we haven't really heard from that are attending. Dan, Dan Tree, uh, he popped in about a third of the way through the show. Did you, were you just wanted to listen in or do you have any questions? Oh, no, just um, like my holy grail is the, like it finally got was the M6. It's, it's got the lights logo on it. And I guess it's just weird because like suddenly this camera's like so expensive and I'm going on this family vacation. Does anybody else feel weird about going to like major cities with $4,000 around their neck? You know, cause like, I'm not thinking about just packing something way cheaper, but then I'm going to miss shooting with it, you know, going to San Francisco. But Dan, there's a way around that. Buy quite a few cameras worth that much. So then they just sort of blend in. <laughs> there you go. See? It's, it's perfect. I mean, I, I lucked out because I got this, like, it's it's got the bubbles on the paint because it was one of the earlier models, so it didn't stick to the paint very well. Yeah. Yep. And it, but now suddenly that makes it collectible or something. Like, I don't know. So I, I kind of got uh, into it drunkenly one night just before the prices <laughs> skyrocketed. So now I can show it to my wife and say, look, no, it's it's going to, when I die, it's worth a lot of money now. You, you know. sell this. Yeah. Cool. And do you shoot it a lot then? I do, yeah, yeah. It's... it's I knew I'd get it and not lose any money. And I've always, I've always shot SLRs. And so when I finally got the rangefinder, I just love it. I shoot with the wrong eye though, but I've always done that. <laughs> so are you left, your left eye dominant? Yeah. So I've always got a nose print on all my cameras. I am but... too. Okay, I good. Too. Yeah. yeah. You're I'm... not alone. Okay. I, I, you know, all the, all the best photographers are left eye dominant. That's just the <laughs> known good. fact. That's oh, I know. <laughs> I'm a left eye shooter too. Again, another reason why those external viewfinders there are so go. great, especially the one-to-one versions, because now you're not covering up your whole face. That's right. Andrew. So wait a minute. There's there's 12 people on this call. How many of you guys are left eye? Anthony, Dan, both Dan's, myself. Okay, so four of us. Right. I have no choice. I have no choice. I have I have to be right eyed because I'm okay. legally blind in my left eye. Yeah. So yeah. Years ago when I was shooting. There was a UPI photographer watching me shoot a, a basketball game and I'm shooting and my left eye is wide open. Right. And I'm shooting through my right eye. He couldn't believe I could shoot with my left eye open because everybody else squints. When it, he said, how do you do that? I said, oh, it's just something I didn't. I never told him I couldn't see out of my left eye anyway. <laughs> the other thing I was going to mention is like, so I've got the Sumicron 50 F or version four. And I got to say that that lens hood that came with that thing is the worst design. <laughs> I know thing like i just finally just tossed it off to the side i'm tempted just to resell it because i'm looking at what they list for on on ebay and i'm like well look at that i know i know i think you know what i found with the with carrying a leica is that about 85 percent of the people who i encounter or who encounter me when i'm using my camera they look at me and they're like look at that guy using a crummy old camera that's what i mean other the other 15% will come up to you and go, what, what model is that? Ooh, what do you have? What lens is that? And they, you know, it's like a conversation starter. It's very uncommon that your average knucklehead purse Mother. grabber dirt bag is going to see that camera and say, I'm going to take that. In, in, unless you leave it on the you know seat of the car yeah. or on the edge of the table at the cafe right adjacent to the sidewalk where that's somebody on me can, you know as long as you're not if, especially if it's around your neck i'm telling you man take your like and nobody right. knows what those things are i'm doing it <laughs> do it thank you all right nafis welcome back uh for those of you listening that did not hear the last show nafis was on and uh, he was going to take apart his wide locks and see if he could fix it and get it back together. So that's my first follow-up question. Did you try it? 
No, I didn't. Um, I did. I did. I did put a couple of more rolls through it. So I'll process okay. it and see how it goes. And this was after the show. You're a, a mechanical engineer or electrical engineer? I'm an electrical engineer. Yeah, electrical engineer. So, so I I would say like that just sort of like raises somewhat your reputability of you know being able to take something apart and maybe maybe get it back together. But uh, but what's what's well. what's even cool? <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> well, you have a tendency of taking it apart too fast and you get too excited and you don't yeah. take the appropriate notes. And I don't know, sometimes it just doesn't get back together again. <laughs> yeah. Did you have any questions for Dan? Uh, no, I mean, like, you know, I've always, I, I shoot with a lot of, like, I have an expat, I shoot with that a lot. And the range finders thing, I feel like I have better luck with focusing shooting with a range finder. I know I heard a couple of you don't like shooting with rangefinders, but anyways. Um, so yeah, I tend to shoot with it quite a lot. I do have, let's see, I have the Bessas. They are really cool. I have yeah. uh, one of their manual ones. Um, and uh, yeah, I do like those. Well, I find when you have really terrible vision like I do, even on the brightest SLRs, sometimes it can be a challenge to see focus. You know, mm. like in low light, I, I will miss focus on occasion, even in an SLR. Whereas with the rangefinder, all I need is a vertical line, you know, and obviously assuming it's calibrated correctly. But I feel like in my experience, a rangefinder is going to get me a little bit better focus in low light than I can do with an SLR. Mm -hmm. That's what brought me to to the Leica. I mean, I had I had handled them and I had put a roll through them because I'm, I came up in a house full of them, but the, I got, I got kind of tired of missing focus and the split screen, I just never really gelled with. And so when I picked up a rangefinder for the first time, I actually think it was a Canon and not a Leica, but in any case, I, as soon as that double image was in front of my eye, I was like, aha, I'm home. Yeah. Now, have you ever shot what? Who made that digital rangefinder? Was it Epson? You ever shoot one of those? The RD one, RD one S. Yeah, yeah. I want one of those. I've seen one. I mean, it shares the same body as like the R two A and some of the other sort of uh, maybe okay. casino bodied ones. The rangefinders, but it's basically the same body on the RD one. I think. I, I don't see what my best has to do with Leica at all. <laughs> <laughs> Anthony's holding up a pre-war Bessa there, not the <laughs> not the Cosina made ones. Wrong decade, Mr. Rue. <laughs> By a lot. Leica in 2022 is a very forward-thinking company. You know, they just released the M11. They're definitely focused on digital innovation. You know, they're they're uh, they're doing a lot of incredible engineering and, and coming up with really cool cameras. I mean, I would I would love a uh, a monochrome. I was down at Clyde Butcher's darkroom, and I know that because of his stroke, he switched from shooting large format to shooting the the, the Leica monochrome and developing internegative so we can do his large format printing on it. And the guys working in his, his print lab were as happy to work with those as they were with, with his uh, his old 8x14 negatives because they were getting such incredible prints off of it. So my question is, 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 with Leica as a company that is clearly focused on digital, is the film division just a like a vestigial afterthought that they sort of keep it around as, you know, like the hand crank cars is sort of like a nostalgia thing? <laughs> or... Do you think that at some point that Leica will develop new film cameras to, you know, sort of keep pace with what they're doing on their digital side as well? I, it's a very good question. I think both. Let me first say that 
I understand what what uh, Clyde's people mean about those monochrome files because it they they are spectacular, absolutely spectacular. Um, there is a little bit I think of both in the Leica boardroom. I think that there's a certain amount of legacy desire to, or, or there's a certain amount of desire to continue producing film cameras because it's where Leica began. It's their legacy, and in fact, the mo- most back-ordered item in the entire Leica catalog is the Leica film camera, the Leica MP. More back-ordered than the new lens, more the 35 Apo Sumicron, a spherical, blotty, blotty, blot. Way more back-ordered than that, way more back-ordered than the M11, way more back-ordered than anything in their catalog. We have scores of people that want the Leica MP. But to answer the second part of your question, I do think that Leica will produce another film camera. And I think that it will be something of a more approachable price point uh, than the MP, not with the same type of build, all brass, all steel kind of thing. I think that that is definitely a possibility. I don't know anything about it if and if I did, I you know I would be under an NDA. I wouldn't be able able to say, but they don't share that information with me. I'm you know I'm not I'm not part of the Leica works, so I don't really know exactly what they're planning. But I don't think that they're going to get rid of the MP or the MA, which is the other film camera that they make. It's basically a Leica M2 in modern modern parts and and uh, it's it's a Leica M2 with a few more frame lines in the viewfinder. Both of those cameras are going to continue to be made, I I think, because it is so much a part of who Leica is, what Leica is, and and what Leica people really want. And there's going to come a time when there's not enough parts available, you know, even though they made 200,000 Leica M3s or so uh, that there's not going to be parts and there's not, you know, there's, there's, it's, there has to be an evolution. And I think that continuing to build the, a film camera, whether or not it's the only film camera in the marketplace or not, it's very important to Leica and Leica's um, whole milieu that they continue to produce a film camera. So I would expect that uh, something to be in production for many years to come. That'd be awesome. And I just about cried the other day because the Leica store here in LA offered me an ma and i had to tell them i was like that is so kind of y'all but i'm a few years off from being able to pull the trigger on that one yeah yeah well they're coming around i actually just got two last week so they're they're coming around well it, it would make sense to me that they would try to come up with something maybe you know nicer than the cosina buses but to have a camera because i mean they sell lenses you know so why wouldn't they want to have a camera that they could put in more hands to sell more lenses. Yeah, that's an interesting, it's an interesting, it's a, a little bit of a conundrum because uh, Leica is, Leica is a luxury brand. And no matter how many ordinary mortal people <laughs> who can't afford to spend 15 or $20,000 on their camera kit, all of us mere mortals, while we may love Leica and, and aspire to the Leica, um, it's unapproachable for a lot of people. And I think that as long as there are approachable Leicas, that is the secondhand market, there's not really any reason for them to make anything other than what they're making. And I think that I don't know for, I don't know for certain any of this, but just speculating, I think that they're fairly unconcerned with 
lens sales. They can barely produce what the market wants anyway. And it, I, it sounds terrible to say it, but I think that there's a certain amount of, I think, calculated things are, they, uh, these things are made of unobtainium. You know, I think that, that it, that's part and parcel. Well, sure. you, you generate desire. Yeah. You generate desire. If they could make a million Leicas a year, they, they would, there were so many that would be unsold. Their, their value would plummet. So there's absolutely value in making things that are a little bit hard to get. That's right. That's right. And if, and, and if every Tom Dick and Harry can run out and buy with an American express black card can run out and buy a camera, then it, how desirable could it really it's be? It's not special anymore, right? Yeah. And so I don't, I have no special knowledge about this, but it just seems to me that there's a balance being struck there between um, manufacturing the best cameras in the world and the best lenses in the world and manufacturing the object of desire. And I think that they're never really fully going to meet head on. So it's hard really to say what Leica will do. I, I believe me, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. That's one of the main questions I have for them every time I meet with, uh, with anyone at Leica, the brass included, is what's next. But they're very tight-lipped about that kind of thing generally. And I understand, I understand why. And that's one of the things that we do beyond buying, selling, trading, and sourcing cameras for people um, and the antiquity part of thing, the auction part of thing things is managing expectations. And a lot of that, especially with new like a product is a large part of the job uh, because not, not everything is available all the time. And it's frustrating. Believe me, it's frustrating not only to um, like a clientele, but it's frustrating for, for their dealership as well. And in fact, we have a, some videos about this coming out and I, I try to main, maintain as much communication as I can about this kind of thing, because it sounds it doesn't sound like an ambassador for the brand would say this kind of thing, but the, it's the fact of the matter. I mean, it's, it's what the market is. Just as we're wrapping up, Dan, I'm going to throw in one last question, see if you can answer it in a couple of minutes. We, we covered the rangefinders, we covered the SLRs, Leica compact cameras. What's the, what's the one to get? Deluxe. Deluxe 6, Deluxe Type 109, or Deluxe 7. The Deluxe cameras are fantastic, especially if you're a shooter and you like some kind of control and you like the manual controls. Um, I think those cameras are terrific. I, I, the other compacts that they make, the V as in Victor and C as in Charlie Lux cameras are terrific also, but they're made mainly, I think, for more kind of automatic shooting right. with a little i mean there's plenty you can do with them and they're excellent cameras but i think that for folks who really like to have some measure of control over their exposure and aren't afraid of a few more dials and buttons on their camera the deluxe is absolutely the way to go i think that they're terrific cameras in fact i carry um i carry a monochrome camera with a 35 millimeter lens because i believe that that's the most versatile single lens to carry and I carry a deluxe, so I have color and, and black and white. And I do nice. on occasion shoot on my iPhone. I know that might be heresy here, but I do I, I occasionally take <laughs> I pictures. Think we all do. Yeah, but I mean that's the way you know that's the way it is these days. You know, people say people say, oh, you know, oh, you saw Leica, you must hate iPhones. Like, no, I love my iPhone. It takes terrific pictures of the sunset. But I, I'm going to make a real photograph. You know, I use, I use a real camera. And I think that the more, the more people take photographs and the more people are involved with photography and enjoying photography, the more, the better. I mean, why not? You know, it doesn't, 
moving from moving away from the iPhone or Android or whatever gadget people are using these days doesn't necessarily lead them to the Leica brand, but it gets them taking pictures. And it's, you know, there's, it's the more the merrier. I mean, there's no competition. It's not uh, no, it's not a race. Get out there and take pictures, have fun. Like I said, it doesn't matter if it's a, you know, it doesn't matter if it's a hot pink Hello Kitty Holga or uh, or a like. It doesn't matter what it is. I'm gonna. I need to find now. a hot pink Holga. I'm saying the same thing right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we will end this wonderful episode on hot pink Holgas. Uh, Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, don't feel like you have to be invited to come on. We record every other week. Uh, Robert pops in, John pops in. Uh, if you want to just join us, you're absolutely welcome. Uh, maybe uh, on our next Miranda episode, we could talk about that a little bit more. Thank you so much. Following up on something from our last episode, we talked about the, the Miranda 1.4, how to tell the difference between the seven and the eight element. Uh, Mike Novak confirmed that by you have to take the lens off and you look at the rear element, the eight element bulges out a little bit, whereas a seven will be flat. So answering a question from the last episode on that. Um, thank you to everybody else who's come to participate. It's always wonderful to see new faces. I like seeing returning guests too. Uh, I love the the questions that we get because you never really know. Even though we knew this would be a Leica episode, who, who'd have thought we'd be talking about uh, viewfinders and Nikon cassettes and deluxes and all the other great stuff. One last question for Dan. Shoot. Am I going to see you at the next show, Dan? You betcha. You're going to be you there? You betcha. Okay. And I'll and I'll, I'll find more time to chat. I'm sorry. Yeah, that I last one wasn't good. Yeah. Now, if I could say one thing, real first of all, I, just two things, really quickly. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a thrill. I'm I'm thrilled to meet you guys. Uh, Mark, I'll get you one of those cassettes. Dan, let me know what kind of questions you have. All of that. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. I didn't answer your question, which is, what's my favorite like a code word? Uh huh. So Leica made code words for every product. They were five letters. I'm going to have to go with the obvious, Nookie. Oh, see, mine is Fook. Fook is a good one. F-O-O-K-H. Fook is a good one. Nookie is, Nookie is, a, the Nookie Hessem was actually the, the uh, there was a, when you combine the two, you had a Nookie Hessem. Right, right. But the, I never really understood all that. I always have to go back to the, to the little booklet that tells me all right. about that. I love those five letter codes. And yep. The, and so, but now I wish I had a better answer that wasn't the obvious one because Nookie is like, that's a gimme, you know? There's a blue, a black blue. A black blue. All right, man, I got to geek out on the I mentioned, Wait. I love the Sabui. The Sabui, yes. The, so the Sabui is a 50 millimeter viewfinder, right. and the Sabu is a 35 millimeter. 35 millimeter. So, Paul, you have uh, now this is a great episode, and for me anyway, because you stumped the chump again. Really? That's one of the few Leica accessories from that era I've never held. I've never held a black blue. What a pleasure this has been, Mike. Thank you so much for having me. It's really Thanks been a lot of fun. John, I yeah, hope we connect. You. I'd love to talk more about your stuff. Sure. Um, yeah, I'll find you. Feel free to share my information, Mike. Um, yeah, I'm always, always happy to talk uh, any cameras or anything. So thanks again, guys, for having me. It's really Thank been you. fun. Thank you so much, guys. Right. Take Thank care. You. Bye, everybody. Bye, Bye. Bye. Thanks, guys. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thanks, everyone.
I didn't get to ask him about King. I was going to ask him what, <laughs> about King. But I, Neither the Queen nor Johnny showed up. Or Johnny, so, yeah. No surprise there. 